Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so last week, we got to the place where Jesus is acting out the parable of the cross, I called it, where he... Um, is fully God, but takes on the role of a servant by wrapping the towel around his waist and washing his disciples' feet. Um, we got to the place, I believe, where Peter was very uncomfortable. Do you remember that? He says, uh, you shall not wash my feet. And that related to um, a quote, I think I read you guys, I teach this three times, so sometimes I forget <laughs> where I got with each group. But uh, a commentator by the name of Temple, he says, sometimes we show a servant's heart by accepting the service of others for us. If we only serve and refuse to be served, it can be a sign of deeply rooted and well-hidden pride. Man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much pride and condensation in our giving of service. And so there was an issue here of pride not being able to receive a service from the master. And he says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And that word is very interesting because that word part is a word referring to Israel's inheritance of the promised land. The covenant inheritance. So what he is saying, you will have no inheritance of, what is the inheritance of the new covenant? Jesus. You will have no part with me. You see, this must happen. I must lay down my life. I must become a servant for you. He's talking about the cross. In order for you to have me as an inheritance, in order for you and I to be one, just as the Father and I are one. Do you remember the whole wheat dying in the ground? Unless the wheat dies, it just remains a piece of wheat. But if it dies, it will bring forth this great multiplication. That's not gonna happen unless I first die. You receive that and you duplicate me. And if you duplicate me, then you will become a servant like me, which means what? You're too gonna have to crucify that flesh. So all of this is necessary. Peter, this is necessary. And then Peter, you gotta love Peter. He's like, all right. Well, I want a part of you, so you go ahead and wash my, me head to toe. And I can just see, I think Jesus smiled. Um, I can just see the love in his eyes for Peter and just how he smiles. And he says, basically, that's handled. Why? Because it is by belief. Peter believed and he was saved. He's like, that's handled. The washing of the feet is keeping, is washing the world away, right? So He's acting out the cross in the sense that he has become a servant, but he's also showing them how to love one another and how to follow him. But he's also giving us a lesson that as we live in this life, what? We get a little dirty. And so there is a daily washing that needs to occur. We, we keep short accounts with Jesus, right? Short accounts, Daily accounts, it keeps us really close because the longer we go, I don't know about you, but do you remember yesterday or the day before or habits that are formed? No, and so it is, it's a daily washing. So you have, you have that theme going on. He wants to make sure that they understand what he's done. So as a way to finish chapter 13, let me just start reading in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I always read it like this. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, so is a messenger nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, 
but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting a psalm that David talked about when David was so wounded of the betrayal of someone close to him. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one I sent, who sent me. So the next thing it's going to say, and his spirit was troubled, all right? He is talking about who? Who is going to betray him? Judas, all right? He wants them to know that he is aware. He wants them to know that he is aware. He goes, I am fully aware of who I've chosen. I know exactly what is going to happen. But here's the thing. You can, he wants them to know that he is aware, but he's not unmoved by it. He's human. And so he wants them to know that this is not a surprise so that later on when this happens, he will realize, he, they will realize that he knew already and that he is the I am. But he's aware, but he's not unmoved by the fact that Judas has betrayed him. He has been following him all this time. And keep in mind, he too washed Judas's feet. And so it says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I love the fact that in the other gospels, they start wondering, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? See, that, that would be me. I would immediately go, am I going to do that? Is that me? And we're all aware of who we really are and what we're capable of. Um, and so, but they had no clue who it was. There was nothing about Judas that screamed that he was the betrayer. Matter of fact, every time almost you hear about Judas, there is some reference to the giving to the poor. So could he have seemed like the least likely candidate to betray but they didn't know. And I think, isn't that the example of the whole parable of the wheat and the tear? Be very careful. God planted good wheat, but the enemy came and planted tear, weeds. And he said, don't spend your time out there trying to pull the weeds because you're gonna be pulling some tear. See, we don't know. God knows the heart of man. We could be out yanking the, the wheat when, and leaving the tear. And he's like, you just leave the harvest up to me. Because you don't know. And I think it's so interesting. So they were so un uncertain. And so one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table. That would be John. And Jesus said, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. This just cracks me up. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he in whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew that he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. I love this scene. Were your children ever like that? Hillary, you ask her, ask her. You know, like John, the disciple Jesus loved, who is at the right hand and he's leaning, you know, his direction so he can whisper in his ear. Peter across the table uh, is like, John, ask him who it is. <laughs> and so he just leans back and he goes, who are you talking about? And why? Like, why didn't Peter just ask? Because I think Peter wants to know in secret. Because what do you think Peter is thinking? Oh, no, you don't. If I find out who you are, right? Isn't Peter the kind that just takes matter in his own? Just tell us who it is. We'll take him out right now. This isn't going to happen, right? Because Peter is, no, he's in charge of this situation. He's going to take control. He's going to handle it. He's going to protect Jesus, that's what he's going to do. And so I think that's a funny scene. But bottom line, they know that there is one that will betray Jesus and they can see that he is very troubled by it. All right. Then it goes on to say, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Talking about the cross. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just just as I have loved you. What was the old commandment he gave to them? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Look and live. This is the commandment that God had brought to them. You also are to love one another. So now he's like, not only are you to look and live, believe in me and have life, but the second thing I'm telling you is that you need to love one another, which he just showed them by the washing of their feet. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh my gosh, it's getting serious in here. He has just said that someone at the table is betraying him. And now he is saying that he is going to leave. And where he's going, they cannot follow. And he is giving them, basically, I'm going to leave you with the last word here, love one another, because let me tell you, you're gonna need to. I won't be here, so you need to love one another. Um, And that's how people are gonna know you're mine. And they're like, what? I mean, how long ago was the triumphal entry? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and the King of Israel. And now they're having a dinner and they're hearing, and he's troubled, and they're hearing that uh, one of them is gonna betray him and that he's leaving and they cannot go where he's going. And so he leaves them with the words that you guys need to love one another as I have loved you. That's how people are gonna know that you belong to me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will afterwards. Well, I'm so glad that's in there, aren't you? Because what did he say to the Jew? The Jews, where I am going, you cannot come because I have told you who I am and you failed to believe. And because of that, you will die in your sins. Therefore, you cannot go where I am going. But here he says, no, I'm going and you can't follow me where I'm going. But after then you can come. That, that's positive. But Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I love that. No wonder he calls them little children. I am so like that. No, I want to come now. No, it's best if you, no, I want to come now, he says. I will lay down my life for you. Do you think he means it? Yes. We're going to see in in a little while that, yeah, he means it. He grabs the sword. He's ready to fight. He's not a good aim. He only gets the ear, but he's in. He's in this thing. He's willing to fight. He's willing to lay down. I don't care where you're going. Tell me where you're going because I will go with you. I am going to lay down my life for you. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, let me tell you the truth. The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is quite the dinner. I'm not going to go into the Peter denial because I'm going to stay true to how John has laid out his his work. And maybe we'll look at that again because that whole scene with Peter is pretty amazing. But I want you to look at the dinner in a whole. Because how does 14 start? Let not your hearts be troubled. By the way, these chapters were added later. This is a story we're reading. So don't let, oh, end of chapter 13, something new 14. No. He's like, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Because they're troubled. Why are they troubled? Well, they just found out that one of their 12 that they've been traveling with for how long somebody has betrayed Jesus. And now everything, the wheels are coming off. Because now he says someone's betrayed him. He seems troubled. And then after that, he said, so I am going to go somewhere and you can't come. So I'm just telling you, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you, but you need to love one another. Take care of each other. 
because, and that's how they're gonna know that you belong to me, but you can't come with me. And Peter's like, uh, yeah, I can. And he's like, no, Peter, by the way, by the time the rooster crows, you're gonna have denied me. Let me tell you why Peter is not speaking in the next chapter. Because Peter is sitting there still thinking about the words. He can't speak because he's in his own head. What, what do you mean deny? So the fact is, their hearts are absolutely troubled because there are reasons for their hearts to be troubled. I love that that word troubled literally is the same word as um, the description at the pools of Bethesda when it says the waters were stirred up. Have you ever felt that way? All stirred up inside. They are troubled. They don't understand. They have doubt and confusion and uncertainty and fear, and they're all stirred up. That's how I describe anxiety sometimes. You're just stirred up. And sometimes the feeling is so great, you don't even know truly what the feeling is. Have you ever been there? And especially if you've been stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it behind a dam and not addressing your emotions, sometimes you just put it away until the pressure builds so much that when something cracks, when you're out of control, even in the littlest of things, it comes through so hard that you can't even describe it in any other way than in anxiety. And it takes a lot of time to say, what am I feeling? Well, I'm, I'm mad. Why? Well, well, maybe I'm afraid. Well, and you have to walk back to figure out what is it that you're actually feeling. They've got so many feelings right now so much fear and uncertainty. They don't have a grasp on anything. Nothing is working like they thought it should. They have questions about everything. And so they're all stirred up inside and they're absolutely upset. They are troubled. And then he commands them. So let's read, let's read part of chapter 14 and then break it up. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am the father and the father is in me? I am in the father and the father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. We we could stay in this chapter for a long time, but I'm not going to. Believe in God, believe also in me. He commands them. It's imperative. It's an imperative. He commands them to stop being troubled. <laughs> he, he says, set your heart at ease. Now, I could ponder this for quite some time because if you've had anxiety or you've been troubled or there are reasons to be troubled, for someone to tell me, well, just stop. Oh, okay. You know, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about it. Uh, or Shannon, have, you know, are, are you praying? Are you reading? No. Have you read the Bible? Nah. No, I'm worried, but I, no, I hadn't even opened it. No, I'm not worried at all. I'm not, haven't read the Bible. I haven't gone to gym. Yes. Yes. I have had anxiety so bad, to be quite honest, that reading the Bible increased my anxiety. That's weird. But I've had it that way. 
because of whatever was happening, thoughts happening in my, in my body, all right? So it's not, I don't want to tie it up in a bone, give an equation, just go, just stop it. But he didn't just do that, okay? Because he knows they're, gonna, they're going to be troubled for a while. But he, there is some element, though, that we have to face. And that is, our feelings are important, emotions are important, but we aren't slaves to them. There is some aspect to where we can control. We can do something. And that's what he's, he says. So the antidote here that he is talking about this trouble, okay? And I'm not, I'm not, listen, I know I'm, I'm in counseling myself. I know there's deep rooted things that have to come out. I'm not talking about mental health issues necessarily, but they are troubled because of what is happening. And he is saying the antidote to that is trust. That's what he's saying. Because he commands them to stop. And then uh, he says, trust in God and trust in me. Tenney says, God's solution is not a recipe, but a relationship. It's a trust in a person in who he is. It's not a recipe. Uh, The thing is, I'm always telling people things that I do to deal with a troubled spirit, right? It's not a recipe because when I go out and I hike or I run or I do that, I use those things as a way to meditate to be with a person, and that's Jesus, To be honest, my recipe, he's the main ingredient, right? So yes, there are tools that we can use. But if it's just tools and we're not trusting in a person, to me, that doesn't cut it for me. So if I'm running, I'm talking to him until I go so many miles that I can't talk anymore that I finally shut up and I can listen. He's waiting for that. I think sometimes he looks down and goes, well, at about mile four. She's finally going to shut up so I can talk to her. Or breathing. When I breathe and I try to handle it that way, I am always thinking about the breath of God in my lungs, the breath of God and allowing him to come in and the Holy Spirit. So we can have a recipe, things that we do, but it can't be just about the breathing treatments or the running or all of that kind of stuff. They're tools. Doctors can give you tools, but to me, it is all about this right here. It is trust in a person that I have a God who loves me and he's got me. And I love the fact that what he says the next part, he gives them a new focus and he basically gives them the end. Um, By the way, he is not telling them to believe in him as if it is the first time, okay? He's not telling them, you know, believe in me, like they haven't believed in him up to this point. What he is saying is, listen, keep believing in me. I know it's hard right now, but trust me. Trust me, believe in me. Haven't I always been trustworthy to you? Haven't I always been faithful? Think of all this time we've been together. Have I ever let you down? I know your hearts are troubled, but control that trouble. Handle that stirring by putting your eyes on me. Trust me. And they could see him. And then he does an amazing thing. He equates it. He says, trust in God and trust in me. He put those two things on the same playing field. In other words, he is saying to trust in God is to trust in me. And to trust in me is to trust in God. Do you know who I am yet? Trust in me. Hang on. Have faith in me. I know you're stirred, but I'm your anchor. And you just look at me and you trust in me. And then I love the fact that he gives the end. I don't know about you, but when I watch movies, I like to know the end. I know it's sick, but you know, when you're stressed out, (laughs) when you're not, when your heart is troubled, You ain't got room for a troubled movie. 
Like, I need to know the end. Is this thing going to end happy or not? Because, and I don't care if you ruin it for me. It's not going to ruin it. I'm actually going to enjoy it better if I know at this point that it's going to end happy. I can still feel the pain of the moment. I can still feel the joy of the moments. But it just satisfies me to know that at the end, at this two and a half hour excruciating movie, that they're going to get together and love each other and it's going to be happily ever after. It's going to be fine. It's going to end happy, right? And so in some way, that's basically what he did. When he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So he's told them. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Wow. Jesus has given them so many reasons to trust. And don't you like the fact that he speaks of this not at the end. He's not speculating about heaven. He's not wondering about heaven. This is, he is confidently telling them what it is from firsthand knowledge. And he has given them so many reasons to trust him. He doesn't want them left in the dark about their future, especially when the confusion and loneliness is coming like they're going to feel. He shines the light on the final outcome. He wants them to have confidence. He tells them some main things. He is returning home to his father. He is preparing a place for them. And therefore, they can be absolutely confident that they will be together again with Jesus. I'm going to tell you what. In the deepest, darkest nights of grief and trouble, you need to know the end of the story. If you didn't, you would not survive it. I am going to my father. I am building you on a room. And you can be absolutely confident that the end of all of this, we will once again be together as a family. He is telling them, my home will be your home. There's some important things. Heaven is a real place. It is not a figment of the imagination. It is a real place created by God for his people. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity. It is so good. It says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. I'm hoping he's thinking that's all mankind, right? There is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. There's a desire that earth can't fulfill. This unfulfilled desire is a reminder that heaven is real. I think that's what it means when it says that God puts eternity in the hearts of men because we know hmm, there's something that just isn't filled. There's something I desire that is missing that I can't seem to fill up here. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews described when he described men and women of faith as those who were looking for a different kind of city, one whose architect is God. Hebrews 11.10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Jesus tells his disciples that there's such a place. At the end of this long road, which can be so lonely and dry, there is a room with your name on it 
and it's prepared by me. Let that sink into you. At the end of this long road, this long journey, which is tough, and it can be really lonely and filled with pain and dry, but at the end of the long road, you get to go home. His home will be our home. And your room has your name on it. And he's been preparing it. I love Pilgrim's Progress. Have you ever read it? Y'all, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to read that. And, and if you have younger people, read it. There's even Bible studies based on Pilgrim's Pro- Progress, this allegory. Um, so the young man, y'all are looking, have you ever heard of Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. Um, the young man, uh, the character in it, Christian, right? The whole thing is about Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And he meets all kinds of characters along the way. But the fact is, Christian is never truly home until he reaches the celestial city. So the point is don't waste your time trying to make your home here. It's not here. Now listen, we all have the propensity to make a nest. You can look at the homeless. You can have nothing and still desire to make what? Your nest, a place, your stuff, all right? But this is not our home. We are passing through. Our home is waiting for us in the celestial. It's a place. It's for real. And I'm gonna tell you, all my hope is there. I feel like I have one foot there and one foot here when you lose somebody that you love. But it is a place. Some other key thoughts. Do you realize that it said many rooms? Many rooms. I don't think the disciples have any clue what that means. Because he has told them, right, that when the wheat dies, it will multiply. Do you think they have any idea what this multiplication is going to be like? I mean, honestly, think about Pentecost. 3,000 people came, came to know they were born again in a moment. That was more than they had seen in the whole ministry of Jesus, Like, they have no idea the door that is about to open and what they are about to see and what is going to happen with the gospel. And listen, he is saying there are many rooms. There are plenty of rooms in this home. And I cannot imagine what that is going to be like. Uh, Have you ever heard, or do any of your Bibles say mansions? Oh, my goodness. Cross that out. No, (laughs) I don't want you to mark up your Bible. Really bad translation. It should be rooms, spaces, because this is so typical in my mind of American gospel. We want to make this about reward, you know? Oh, the, and there's all kinds of good Southern gospel songs about my mansion in heaven. I can't think of any right now, but um, about reward and mansions and streets of gold and this whole That is not the context of this whatsoever. It's not about some reward of us getting some mansion. It is about a room built on a home. And that culture, as part of the family, right, when you went and got your bride, you built onto your home. You expanded this family. And that is what, that's what he's saying here, is that my home will be your home. We will be, this is relationship language. It's not about material reward. He is the reward. You see, they loved him. They did not want him to go away. They wanted to be together. And he is saying to them, oh, one day we will be apart, but one day we will be together because I'm building on a room to my house and you're gonna be a part of it. We are a family That is the reward. It's not about mansions and square footage. Has nothing to do with that. This is a a term of relationship. Do you remember? For those who receive him, they will become the children of God. We will be one family united forever. Love prepares a welcome. Think about 
When a baby is about to be born, what do we do? We prepare the room. Well, I mean, I think they still do. We did back in that day, right? We wanted to find out what the baby was so that we could prepare the room and be all precious. How do you treat it when you know a guest is coming? You prepare the room, right? When my kids would come home later, I'd wash those sheets and I'd wash it in divine wash because I loved how it smelled and I wanted them to come home and lay in those sheets and it just smells like mama's home and, and all that. And you prepare it and you dust and, you, and if you have guests, you may put out some water or magazine they like or treats, but you make it special and he is saying, I have prepared your room. It's this idea of personally for you, right? This idea of love. If I've spent time preparing a room for you, do you not think for one minute I am certain you're gonna be staying in it? Absolutely. Love prepares, but there's a deeper meaning. How did he prepare that room? Let me tell you something, real estate in Phoenix, it's out of control. It's crazy. I see the prices and I'm like, oh, it sounds awesome when I want to sell. It sounds terrible if I need to buy, right? I mean, it's insane. I want to move to central Phoenix so bad. And I told, I told my friend, this is how awful my friends are. I said, I need to move to Central Phoenix. I'm gonna have to find somebody who's passed away that won't put their house on the market that will sell me some little brick house in Central Phoenix because I need to be more centrally located. And my friend goes, go be the chaplain at hospice. I said, you are going straight to the basement. I go, that is the worst thought. But my point is, it's almost impossible, right? To get real estate is terrible. Do you know how much it cost him? for your room, his life, his life. It cost him his life so that you could have a room because I'm gonna tell you, we could have never joined him with these dead bodies. We must be born again. He had to die on the cross for our penalty so we could be born in the spirit, born alive. But not only that, one day we must receive a glorified body to be present with the Lord. You know what the whole point of the veil was, correct? In the tabernacle? The whole tabernacle is a beautiful picture of us proceeding to the presence of God. You can't even get in the gate without hitting the altar because without the forgiveness of, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then there's the daily washing of the labor, washing in the word. There's now the entering into the tent. And on the right hand, you have the table of showbread. This um, sitting down and communing with Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door and lets me in, I will sit down and have dinner with him. And it is about eating bread together and, and community and abiding with Jesus. And when we do that, guess what's next? The golden lampstand. I am the light of the world. You spend time with Jesus, guess what you become? The light of the world. And the altar of incense is we get serious about the prayers that are constantly going up before the Lord. But then there's the veil. And the veil separated us from what I would call the home of God on the earth. It is where he dwelt on this earth. The glory of God dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant covered with the mercy seat that held the law. His eyes were focused on the law, the contract. And boy, did we break it. But on top of that, what would the priest put? The blood of the lamb. He'd sprinkle it seven times on the day of atonement so that when the glory of God looked down at the contract that we broke, On the mercy seat, he would see the precious blood of the lamb covering that. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped. Because when he died, when we accept him and we have faith in him, we are born again. We are given the nature of God and we are able to come into his presence through prayer. But one day when we die and we receive a glorified body, 
we will be able to be at home with him. The triune God. Who can understand that? Not me. I don't think any symbol, any little antidote can explain the Trinity, but we will be there. And by the way, we're gonna find out in just a little while that that's what he is saying. You will be with me. You will be with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But while I'm gone, you will not be orphans. I'm giving you a deposit to guarantee this, and I'm gonna send the counselor. That's what's coming next. But this whole thing, remember, they are troubled. Why? Because somebody has betrayed him. It's all gone wrong, and he is leaving, and he says that they cannot come where he is going till later, but they can't come with him. And Peter, you think you will die, but you want, you're gonna deny me. And they're, they're just reeling, and he says, don't be troubled. Trust me. Trust me. And let me give you something to focus on. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame to sit down at the right hand of God the Father. Trust me because I'm telling you, I'm going to my Father and I am building you on a room. And one day, we will abide together as a family again because you got a room with your name on it. It says, I... I will come again and take you to myself. Did you see that? I will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be. We don't have to worry about finding it or missing it. He will come get us and take us there. Isn't that just so awesome? When someone's trying to tell you where to go, and they're giving you instructions, and you're trying to figure it out, and you're confused, is it just so awesome? When they just go, Shannon, just stay right where you are. I'm gonna come get you. And this is what he is saying. He is like, all of this is meant to give them hope during the dark days, especially between the death and resurrection. I think it's really interesting when you talk about heaven with people. Have you ever talked about heaven with people? Or, oh, I can't wait till the Lord comes. And you get different responses, right? Some response is like, for some of us, we're just born slap out, and we're like, I can't wait till the Lord comes. And you know, I've started to understand things too. I remember like with grandparents, and as you get older, I do see why you long. Because you long for that family. I mean, at one point, everybody you know is gone. Everybody you know and everything you know and all your memories are, you got more things in the past and you feel like are coming up and you long for that. So I get that. But sometimes when you're talking to younger people, right, and you go, oh, I cannot wait for the Lord to come. They don't seem to feel the same. And I think that is, I think that's interesting because I think many people have a wrong perspective of heaven. Earth was made for us. It was made for us, but sin broke it. Yet we still experience joy here, don't we? Right? We experience love and we experience uh, children and we experience victories. I mean, my gosh, have you ever had a successful goal line stand? Some of you football moms know what I'm talking about. There is nothing better. I'm gonna tell you right now. I freaking hate football now, but I'm gonna tell you some of the most exciting times. There is no greater time than when my son, who was not supposed to be on the field against ASU, ran out on the field against ASU and made the game-winning goal line stand in his hometown. You've never seen a person freak out like you saw me. I was like, yes! Oh my gosh, I mean, we, there are joys here. Births of babies, successes, weddings, you name it, all kinds of stuff. There's joys here, even in a broken world. Sometimes people question going to heaven because it's the unknown. And they would, they have this fear of missing out. Like, I don't want to go to heaven because I want to get married. And I, you know, if it's young people, I want to have sex and I want to have children and, and all of these things. And you get that. 
But I think it's really interesting what Randy Alcorn said in Light of Eternity, his book In Light of Eternity. Many assume heaven will be unlike earth. But why do we think this? God designed earth for human beings. And nearly every description of heaven includes references to earthly things. Eating, music, animals, water, trees, fruits, a city with gates and streets. The Bible speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, not the non-heaven and the non-earth. New doesn't mean fundamentally different, but vastly superior. Let that sink in. New doesn't mean fundamentally different. It means vastly superior. If someone says, I'm going to give you a new car, you'd get excited. But not because you have no idea what a car is, but because you do know. What is it like? Vastly superior. It is a place. It is a real place. We have a room with our name on it. And there is nothing about this place. I put, don't allow earthly things, joys and pleasures to diminish your appetite for heaven. Ask God to use them to prime your taste buds. If you think we have joys here in this broken world, you cannot fathom what heaven has to bring. If you're not longing for it, anticipating it, then I just wonder if we've made this world too much of our home. It should be something that we long for, that we look forward to. Uh, my son was the most homesick person you've ever met in your life. I always called him a sucky baby. I'm like, Zachary, for reals. Like, he literally slept with me till he went to meet Jesus. I mean, really, he, he, I was like, Zachary, are you gonna sleep in here until you're 16? And we would laugh about it. And then honestly, one night he went to a scary movie as a junior in high school and he came and slept on the floor by my bed. And I'm like, are you for real right now? And he's like, I don't care, I'm scared and I needed to be in here. And he never spent the night away. If he did, I had to go get him. Um, he, even in high school, he would call me at three in the morning, mom, unlock the door, I'm coming in. What is going on? Well, I just would rather sleep in my own bed. So what I absolutely love is the idea, right, of this absolute intimacy. There is no homesick for him. I'm homesick. He's home. His name is, it's his room. He, it's the idea, it's not about a mansion, it's about relationship that you're home with your true family. You're home with the one who knew you intimately in your mother's womb. And you've been on a journey to know him ever since. And you finally have breathed deep in a place where Jesus is with you in the flesh and you're home. And all that the world was made to be for us that became broken is restored, and I cannot imagine what that is like. I also think people don't long for heaven because they have a wrong perspective of Jesus. Our view of heaven reflects our view of Jesus. The disciples did not want to leave him. They did not want him to leave them. They loved him. There was an intimate relationship, and he says, I will come get you and take you to what? myself. That's heaven. Do you understand that? I will take you to myself, that we will be with him. I don't think people understand this. It is the whole view of, do you remember the story of Abraham? And he, he's in the promised land, his wife is dead, and he realizes, oh my word, my son has no bride. It's kind of hard to be a nation if you don't have a bride. And so he sends Eliezer, do you remember this story? El, meaning God, Azer, helper, God's helper, his right-hand man, the one who would have gotten all of the inheritance if Isaac had not been born. 
And he sends him back to the far land where they came from to the well to find Rebekah. Do you remember? And he asked God to help him. And he brings Rebekah. And he basically goes to Rebekah and he says, will you marry my master sight unseen? Huh. At this point, I might say yes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> will you marry my master <laughs> sight unseen? And she says, I will. And at one point she wanted to tarry. And he said, oh no, if you will, let's go. And she then goes with Eliezer on a trip back to the promised land to meet her groom. And so the helper went to get the bride. And I always ask young people, what do you think they talked about the whole way back? How dumb would it be? You just said yes to a lifelong commitment to someone you do not know and you have not seen. Now, your family's happy because we, they know he's rich, but you don't know anything. What would you be asking Eliezer, who has known Isaac since he was born? I'd be asking him everything. What does he look like? How tall is he? Is he athletic? Is he creative? Is he a genius? Is he kind? How does he treat his mother? Is he a hard worker? I mean, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. You would be finding out about your groom. The fact is, when she got into the promised land, it says that she saw someone coming and she said, Eliezer, who is that? And he said, oh, that's my master. And she gets off the camel and she puts her veil on because it's love at first sight. She already knows him. She knows everything about him through the helper. And they go into the tent and they consummate the marriage. Do you understand? That is what is happening here. The father sent us the helper that says, will you marry my son? We are the bride of Christ. Will you marry him sight unseen? Somehow our response was, yes. And he didn't leave us alone on the journey. He's gonna give him the helper so that they can truly, not just from Jesus, but inside truly with the Spirit of God be able to discern spiritual things and that they can understand their groom. How much time are we wasting pinching, I gotta say this right because this could be bad, pitching tents on the side of the road in the journey, not looking and longing to meet our master and wasting all of the time not getting to know him because I'm gonna tell you, heaven is him. It's him. If you don't know Jesus, why on earth would you wanna be there? Do you understand that? They want to be with him. They are horrified that he's leaving them. They love him. They've never experienced anything like him. They, he's changed their life. They feel secure. They feel loved. They have laid eyes on the Son of God. They do not ever want him out of their presence. And they're agonizing over the distance. Are we? Because heaven truly is about being with Jesus. One commentator says this, in the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse of heaven. And every scene centers on one person, Jesus the worship of Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father is the defining characteristic of heaven. Heaven is not great because there is no sickness, death, or pain. It's not great because the streets are made of gold and every tear will be wiped away. All those things are true, but heaven is great because Jesus is there. As Jesus makes this promise to his disciples, he doesn't promise the coolest bachelor pad in the sky where we can do whatever our hearts desire, although our heart will be changed. <clears throat> Though heaven will comprise wonders we can barely imagine on earth, the promise of heaven <clears throat> is that Jesus will be there. He tells them, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. The promise is that they will be with him. Nothing would ever separate them again 
from Jesus. Think of every word that that is described that is good, beautiful, peaceful, joyous, wonderful, great, amazing, happy, spectacular. Heaven will be all those things, but only because Jesus will be there. At the apex of their distress, the disciples could remember the promise, you will be where I am. That promise sustained Abraham and it motivated him to leave his home. That promise sustained David because he wrote Psalm 1611, you reveal the path of my life to me in your presence is abundant joy at your right hand is eternal pleasures. Peter understood it because look at how he wrote to encourage suffering disciples. He says, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And if you're not longing for it, you may not know him well enough. This is why I'm so motivated in studying the scripture, not because it is a box we need to check, not just because, oh, it's gonna correct this in your life and this in your life. Yes, it's magical what it does, produces fruit. But so that you can know who you're married to, And you can long for him because at the end of the day, he is heaven to be with him forever. That's who we long to be with. He says, Peter had said a little while. He says, after you have suffered a little while. Do you ever feel like a little while is not a little while? I mean, have you just ever had a day that you feel like will never stink an end or a season that will never end. One of my friends, Kristen, who's a comedian, I love what she says at the beginning of Aspires, or maybe at the end, I can't remember, when she says that she thinks laughter is an example of the hope we have in Christ because every amount, everything we go through, every suffering, we need to remember as believers, it has an expiration date, right? It has an end. There is only one thing that will not end, and it's what Tozier calls the long tomorrow, and that is heaven. If you don't know Jesus, like know him, know the narrative, know the love story, know what he's done, why would you want to spend eternity worshiping him. Sounds like a dud if you don't know him. We have a wrong perspective. He is saying, listen, yes, someone is betraying me. I'm going away and you can't come. This is necessary. The wheat must die for it to be multiplied. And I love your heart, Peter, but you about to screw up. (laughs) And I know your heart's troubled, but trust me. Trust me, continue to trust me. It's me that you're talking to right now. And I'm telling you, at the end of this long road, oh, it makes me cry. There is a room with your name on it. And we will be together forever. It's weird when you lose someone you love. Sometimes I wonder if I long for heaven to be with Jesus. Or if I long for heaven more, because I'm going to be with Zachary. But I use that as a motivation to get to know Jesus as much as I knew Zachary. And to have a greater love for him over all. So that I cannot wait to be, have a room that's come in that room that's added on. That his home will be my home And it will be heaven because he will be there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. And just the reminder, this is not our home. It's not. We will not be home until we are in our room with our name on it. 
And so, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to do. How do we display to the world that we love you, and because we love you, or actually because you first loved us, that we can love them and that we can introduce them to our Jesus? Because, Lord, this world has an expiration date, and we don't know when it is. And Lord, although I long to be with Jesus, to be with you for eternity, you've left me here with a job to do, and that is to gather others, to multiply, and to be like you in how I serve other people, taking off my outer garment of any kind of pride or prestige and putting that towel around my waist and serving God, may we strive to know you more because it's out of knowing you that will produce the fruit in us, not trying harder, not establishing better habits, not all of that. It is spending time with you, and out of that will come a love that actually can turn the world upside down. We sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.